This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The cordyceps mushroom, this is the only one that doesn't look pretty. It's really interesting in nature. It's, it's almost parasitic. It likes to grow in caterpillars. It literally attaches itself to a caterpillar, then it literally sends projections into the caterpillar's brain and, like, hijacks the caterpillar and will make the caterpillar, like, go into the sun if it wants sun. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about the health benefits of medical mushrooms. We'll hear how hyperventilation can rid alcohol from your system. We'll find out about chair yoga. And lastly, we'll discuss the connection between exercise and weight loss. But first, a little bit of business. Medicinal mushrooms offer a multitude of health benefits, including immune support, improved energy, and stress reduction. All medicinal mushrooms from New Roots Herbal are hot water extracted, so you get their full health benefits. Discover reishi, lion's mane, or resilience, seven mushroom blend. Find the complete selection of New Roots Herbal medicinal mushrooms exclusively at quality health food stores. To learn more, visit newrootsherbal.com. And to ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Naturopathic Dr. Philip Rochadis graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in 2004, preceded by an honors undergraduate degree and master's of science degree, both in nutritional sciences from the University of Guelph. Philip practices at the Bolton Naturopathic Clinic in Bolton, Ontario with his wife, Dr. Heidi Fritz. Philip's areas of clinical focus include mental health, autoimmune disease, and metabolic syndrome. He also serves as an associate professor at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, responsible for delivery of the second year curriculum in clinical nutrition. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? It's a treat to be here, Jamie. Thank you very much for having me. Always great to have you on. And today we're going to cover a topic that, gosh, I don't think we've talked about in years, which is super interesting and full of health benefits, and that is mushrooms. Indeed. The medicinal mushrooms, I feel, because most of the uh, human-level evidence on these is coming from Asia. I think they, for a large part, go sort of unnoticed over here in North America, yet they've been very extensively researched, and they can deliver a lot of very important clinical outcomes. So, you know, mushrooms, as you say, have been used for centuries all over the world. What are the benefits that people have noted that the mushrooms can provide? There's, there's a few different types, and so we got to break them up a little bit. The, okay. way I, the way I enter this discussion is I start with one called lion's mane, mm-hmm. and really just for fun, I encourage listeners to Google image these mushrooms. They really are spectacular, and when you come across these in nature, you're just awestruck. They really are beautiful. Lion's mane mushroom literally almost looks like a brain, these little white projections, hundred of them, like almost like a wig, like a white wig almost. Hmm. So the lion's mane mushroom is principal uses, think brain. So we end up prescribing a lot of this mushroom in settings like neurodegenerative disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. We think it's a really important inclusion when we're working with patients in that area. And the other area we use an absolute ton of it is concussion recovery. So any sort of brain injury or the brain isn't working right, that's where lion's mane really takes the stage. Okay, so if we're going to do these like mushroom by mushroom, let's let's pick another one. What about reishi? Okay, so if you don't mind, I'm going to go to cordyceps first. Okay, sure. Because then there's, there's six in total, 
the other four get grouped together. Got it. So that's why I sort of do the individual ones first, and the other four we talk about all at once. Go ahead, you so do. The cordyceps mushroom. This is the only one that doesn't look pretty. It's really interesting in nature. It's, it's almost parasitic. It likes to grow in caterpillars. Hmm. You can find YouTube videos on this. It literally attaches itself to a caterpillar, then it literally sends projections into the caterpillar's brain and like hijacks the caterpillar and will make the caterpillar like go into the sun if it wants sun or go close to water if it wants moisture. It's really something to see. It, for commercial purposes, they're grown on brown rice, and no caterpillars are harmed. Okay, this good to know. Has, yeah, <laughs> this thing has been revered for millennia. Ancient Chinese emperors used to have armies of people whose job was to scour the forests and find this mushroom for them. It was right, really, really revered. And this one was for, like, back then it was revered for, like, libido. Like it was the, you know, like it, it sure. invigorated you. Modern times, it very much relates to situations where someone is fatigued. So we have a term called adrenal fatigue. Uh, conventional medicine kind of mocks it. It's a very real thing. It's a situation where you've been under like a lot of stress for a really long time. You mean you mean like under a pandemic or something like that? Something like that, right? Like so you have an appropriate response to stress, which is the adrenal glands secrete cortisol. Mm-hmm. When this stress is ongoing and chronic and unrelenting for a period of time, eventually that gland burns out and it can't keep up. And so we see this situation a lot. That's where cordyceps really shines. So situations where people are really feeling chronically stressed, chronically fatigued, they can't make it through a day. If you leave them alone on a weekend, they'll choose to sleep all day. That's where cordyceps shine. In the world of adrenal fatigue, you got to be careful that you don't label depression adrenal fatigue. Yeah, because you, so, kind of, you were kind of, expl- yes. the way it was being explained, it, it sounded a bit like depression. I agree. That's a, that's a caution. So whenever we see that situation, first we assume it's depression and you start treating it. And then what we usually find when you have true adrenal fatigue, our strategies for depression work quite well. Eight, ten weeks later, people are like, hey, I feel better. I feel great, but I still have this horrible fatigue. That's when you're really facing true adrenal fatigue, and that's where cordyceps shines. So then we have the other four, and the other four are Coriolis, which is turkey tail, grows all over southern Ontario, Reishi, Shiitake, and Maitake. Mm -hmm. Okay, these four collectively have hundreds, literally hundreds of human studies on them. And the number one place they shine, and this gets very controversial, oncologists, I feel, are pretty good at scaring people into not using natural medicine. Mm-hmm. These mushrooms are studied in combination with conventional treatments for cancer patients. They're given with either pre-treatment, during treatment, or post-treatment. All four of those mushrooms, each of them has multiple studies for patients with advanced cancer. And what they do in that setting is just amazing. Forest for the trees, they outright prolong life, they improve quality of life, they reduce adverse effects of chemo and radiation. One of the things they do mechanistically is they're working on the immune system. So a common side effect of basically all modern chemotherapeutic drugs is that they destroy an immune cell called a neutrophil. So you have many types of immune cells in your immune system. A neutrophil is a very prominent one. And their levels decline aggressively when you take chemotherapy. This is monitored closely, and if they go too low, you have to discontinue the chemotherapy until those levels recover. These four mushrooms prevent that decline in neutrophils, among other things. But that's one of the really key things they do. 
So the patient is able to undergo their prescribed course of chemotherapy, which when you're dealing with a situation of advanced cancer, that's a very, very important outcome. The other thing they do immunologically is they themselves aren't antiviral, but they ramp up specific subsets of your immunity that fight viruses. So the one area that's been researched very aggressively for this is patients with HIV. Hmm. And so you give these, these mushrooms to patients with HIV and they do a lot better. Okay, so I just want to interject for one moment. I want to be careful here. People who unfortunately have cancer or in chemotherapy, my recommendation would be to speak to your oncologist and your doctors before taking the mushrooms, you know, and get get some guidance because you may be taking medications which contraindicate. But I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And if I would always encourage someone to seek out the advice also of an integrative healthcare sure. provider that focuses yep. in the world of cancer. And this is sort of a mainstay step one kind of treatment. 100%. We just don't want people going off half-cocked and, and just sort of taking it without considering all the ramifications of doing it. It's absolutely great advice for sure. Okay, so when we talk about taking mushrooms, how do we take these mushrooms? Right, so this is an area where the studies are really clearly telling us what form these mushrooms need to be in. And I'm getting a little frustrated because some of the industry is ignoring this. And you've got hundreds and hundreds of studies telling you, do it this way. And some people are listening, others aren't. It's quite simple. These things need to be hot water extracted. They are a mushroom, which means they're a fungus. The nature of a fungal cell is that it has a normal cell wall, like your your cells and mine. But then outside of that, it has a really, really rigid cell, second cell wall structure made of a molecule called chitin. The things you want from the mushroom are within the inner membrane. So you have to get through that outer membrane in order to get to it. You cannot crush it and get rid of it. The way to do it is hot water extraction. So historically, this is a no-brainer. A lot of these mushrooms are foods. They're cooked in meals that have liquids in them, and you're going to get these benefits. Or some of the industry, very intelligently, is powderizing the mushroom and then putting it in a tea bag. So if you go and make a tea out of it, you're going to hot water extract the mushroom and get these actives out of it. Or there are extracts that say, hey, first we hot water extract it, then we standardize it to the active constituents you want, which are the polysaccharide content. The Coriolis mushroom, which is the turkey tail, is the most researched of all of these. Many, many hundreds of studies. We've identified two key polysaccharides in it. And so this is all extremely well known. And I'm just trying to alert um, listeners to the fact that some people out there are pulverizing the mushroom and putting it in a pill. And that's really not going to do the job. You have to look for, has it been hot water extracted or tea bag versions are also very appropriate. Okay, before we move on to the the specifics of, you know, the extraction processes, some of these mushrooms you can buy in a supermarket and just eat, like, for example, shiitake, for sure, right? Right. Um, so are the other ones all edible, and can you purchase them, and how much should we have, or should we focus more on, on the extractions because it's, it's a better way of taking them? I would say shiitake and maitake are 100% edible, and that really also attests to a point we brought up very briefly, which is the concept of safety, right? Right, yeah. These things are in a grocery store, so and generally traditional methods of cooking them, there's always some liquid in that thing that you're making. Yep. That is very legit, but if you're trying to use it as like a medicine, you want to be a little more accurate in what kind of dose you're taking, et cetera, and that's where some of the extraction 
methods and the standardized extracts really have their value. Okay, so let's talk about extracts. For those who don't know, what is an extract? You start, the the, cla- the most classic version is what we call a tincture. If people have ever yeah. taken like a liquid version of echinacea, so it's a very traditional way of, of dealing with a medicinal herb. You take the known most appropriate parts of the plant, you macerate them in really, really, really strong alcohol for a period of one to three months, and then you strain out the plant material, and that alcohol is essentially the medicine. And you're taking very small amounts of it, right, like a teaspoon or two. Mm-hmm. It's just a method of extracting active molecules from a plant. So it so happens in the world of fungus, in the world of mushrooms, the best way to do that is not alcohol whatsoever. It's hot water. Okay. And presumably, the method of extraction, whichever which way the manufacturer is doing it, should be on the label, correct? It absolutely should be. And that's why I'm really encouraging people to look for that. If they're just pulverizing a mushroom, you want to look for hot water. And it should not be difficult to find. There are many versions doing this. Okay. Is there anything else the consumer should be looking at? Is there any dosages or any reference to how frequently the, the mushroom should be taken? That would be best discussed with either somebody representing a good health food store or preferably an integrative healthcare provider. Each mushroom is dosed a little bit differently. Okay. You usually want to dose them twice per day. So like a morning and an evening kind of dosing. And I'd say that's where to go with that. Okay. So in your opinion, Philip, which patients would benefit most from medicinal mushrooms? We like to stick to the science. It's a broad array because there's so many different mushrooms, right? Mm -hmm. So in the world of neurodegenerative disease, that's a big problem. It's becoming a bigger and bigger problem with our aging population, right? So mild cognitive impairment, dementia, Alzheimer's, that's a top, lion's mane mushroom is a top three thing we give to all such patients. Then you have the phenomena of adrenal fatigue. It's very real. I probably diagnose maybe 10% of my new patients every year with it. The cordyceps mushroom is an absolute rock star in that setting. And then the other, the big four, cancer patients, which isn't really an area I work in, but it is my wife's area of focus. So Mm -hmm. she ends up using a lot of those four for those patients. Any patients with sort of chronic low immunity, the evidence tells us HIV patients specifically. Mm -hmm. There's one other really neat area those mushrooms do too, which is the reason women undergo PAP screens is you're looking for what ultimately is early, 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 early stage cervical cancer. Prior to the advent of the PAP, cervical cancer was a major killer of women. And the PAP allowed that process to be discovered three or four steps before it became cancerous. And what the PAP is looking for is a viral infection on the cervix, HPV. It's Mm -hmm. very common. It's a, a different strain of it is the same virus that causes warts. Right, So this is a very widespread bug, and when they find HPV on the cervix, they now have these simple preliminary treatments that get rid of this and stave off cervical cancer. So the chaga mushroom and some of the other cancer mushrooms have actually been shown to do a very good job of eliminating cervical HPV infection, which is a really neat effect. Hmm. And if I have a moment to do a little aside about the reishi mushroom. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, we sort of lumped those four together. The reishi one has all that evidence in cancer. It has all that evidence in HIV. But traditionally, this thing is revered. It's known as the mushroom of immortality. It also very much has an important role in the world of the adrenal fatigue that we're talking about. 
And this is one that it's more, I sort of know about them as an, as an ND, you, you get excited about certain things, then we go back to them. I'm on a big ratio kick. I have patients that convinced me. They're like, look, I started taking this a year ago. I used to get 10 or 12 colds a year. I've been taking this for 18 months and I've had one cold. So it's just low dose of reishi mushroom daily as an overall tonic. And that's a little out of my wheelhouse. I'm more the scientist. What does the studies say? Mm-hmm. But that's sort of using it in its traditional method of use, that it's an overall tonic. It just, you know, elevates you, restores vitality in many ways. Reishi is very revered for that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Will you come again uh, in the new year? I'm very hopeful, Jamie. It's always a treat. All the best to you and have a great holiday season. You as well. That was Dr. Philip Rochadas. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss a new medical process to rid the body of blood alcohol on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Joseph Fisher is a staff anesthesiologist at the University Health Network and senior scientist at the Toronto General Research Institute. He's the founder of Thornhill Medical, a for-profit spin-off company from the UHN, whose mandate is to provide the public medical technology enabled by his research. Welcome back to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I hope you're well, too. All things considered, we live in interesting times, and uh, I'm glad you're back on the show. The last time uh, you were on, we talked about one of your inventions, which was better technology to prevent concussions in sports through helmets, which was fascinating. But you've got something new to talk about today, and it's about how to get blood alcohol out of the system, yes? Yes. Exactly. So why should we care? Why is it important to get alcohol out of our body? Well, usually uh, we, we consume alcohol because we sort of titrate it in to give us the feeling that we want of relaxation or whatever. But very often the alcohol concentrations in the blood go up to points where they become very dangerous. Alcohol, after all, is a poison. And after certain levels, it starts to uh, affect not only the brain, but the heart, uh, the kidneys, and uh, other organs. And people actually die from from alcohol poisoning, about 3 million a year. Uh, Many of those, I assume, are also children. Wow. So 
our body is able to expel alcohol from our system. Like anybody who's had a hangover or who's had, you know, who's had a few drinks knows that eventually it leaves the system. How does that happen organically? Again, alcohol is a poison. The body has ways of uh, either neutralizing or getting rid of it. In this case, it gets rid of it. Uh, the liver takes this, those little alcohol molecules and metabolizes them, meaning it changes their chemistry in such a way that they no longer act as alcohol. So the liver chugs away at a constant rate of elimination of the alcohol. And the words I said there, constant rate, they're going to be important. Yes. So can you elaborate a bit on that? So what, what does that mean? Like- yeah. So it means that no matter how much alcohol you take in, the liver can only get rid of it at a certain rate, which uh, means that if you take it in faster than the liver can get rid of it, it accumulates in the body and can get to the point where it's poisonous and uh, you can have organ damage or die. Right. And I assume as, you know, as a, as a medical doctor, you see situations or you've heard of situations where people do need to get the alcohol out of their system because it, it's poisoning them. So, you know, before your invention, which we'll get to in a moment, what were some of the tools that the medical profession had to get alcohol out of somebody's system quickly? That is the question. In fact, there are no tools. Oh. There were no tools. <laughs> there are no tools. So, you know, when uh, I used to be an emergency doctor, so when, the, uh, when these patients came in and they had uh, levels that were close to their lethal levels, meaning the levels at which they die at, uh, we put in intravenous and hoped for the best. Oh, wow. <laughs> there was nothing we could do about it. There was nothing we could do. So what does intravenous do? Is it to just add other fluids so that like, it balances out, so that the proportion no. of alcohol in the body is, is lowered? Is no, that a- it doesn't even do that. It, it adds some fluid, and it gives us a route that if we can give some medication or something, you know, gives us a route to give medication. That's about it. it. It doesn't do anything therapeutic. Okay, so let's fast forward because you have a new finding. So let's tell everybody what you found out. All right, so uh, if I can just sort of uh, go back. Yeah. So, you know, the liver is the only way to get rid of it, and that's the way it's been forever, for as long as humans have been around. But when you walk by somebody or speak to somebody who's been drinking, you can smell the alcohol on their breath. Yep. So that told us that the alcohol actually evaporates from the blood and goes into the lung. But not much of it, not much. The, the question was, what if we increase the rate of breathing? So if we can triple and quadruple the rate of breathing, so-called hyperventilate, then we should get rid of more alcohol. So we thought, okay, let's see if we get rid of enough alcohol to make it worthwhile meaning to make a a difference in the rate of elimination. Right, in practicality and not just in theory, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like in theory, yes, some more will go out, but if so little goes out extra that it makes no difference in in how the patients live, you know, there's no point in in, uh, hyperventilating them. So that's what we did. So in the background, there's a device that allows us to hyperventilate. So right now, you can't hyperventilate, so that's not an option for you. And neither can anybody else, because if you start to breathe hard, within about 15, 20 seconds or more, you'll start to feel dizzy, lightheaded, and feel terrible. So you you won't be able to carry it on long enough to get rid of your alcohol. So that was a no-starter. 
even if people had thought of it. So what we have is we have a, a device that we developed for carbon monoxide poisoning that allows you to breathe as hard as you want and it doesn't get rid of, well, the reason that you get dizzy is that you breathe off too much of the carbon dioxide in your blood. We need that carbon dioxide at certain levels to maintain our blood chemistry. But if you breathe it all off by hyperventilating, then you get dizzy. So we, we had a device that we developed for treating carbon monoxide poisoning that allows us to hyperventilate, breathe as hard as we want, and doesn't get rid of the carbon dioxide. So we don't feel badly. So we can keep hyperventilating. So that allows the alcohol to leave through the, through the process of hyperventilation. Is that right? That's right. And then we just measured it to see how much of an effect it would have. And in fact, it had a way greater effect than we even anticipated. So is it now an effective treatment? If somebody comes in with too much blood alcohol, you, you can hyperventilate them and, and reduce the alcohol levels? Well, we could. Right now, what we did and what we published is a proof of concept. So from a scientific point of view, the first thing you do is you show that this is a viable treatment. Right. And then you have to test it in a clinical setting on real people who are really overdosed with alcohol and see if it works out practically uh, in the field. But I'm pretty confident that it'll work out practically because there's virtually no side effects, there's no downside, and it's simple enough that, that it should work. But, you know, to be safe as a scientist, you know, I have to say, well, you know, we should do clinical studies before we actually give it the check mark. Let's say somebody was over the blood alcohol limit for driving, for, for argument's sake. Okay, so not, not fatal, but they have too much blood alcohol to be driving. Based on what you've seen, how long would they have to hyperventilate using this technology in order to get their blood alcohol levels down? Is it a matter of minutes, hours? Like, how would it work? Yeah, no, it's a matter of minutes. So uh, the way the math tells you that you, you bring your level to half in about 40 minutes. So... If you are just above the uh, driving level, mm-hmm. you just need a few minutes of this and because uh, you don't need to go to half, right? Because you're just slightly over the level right. unless you want to go to half. So if you did want to go to half, you, you'd hyperventilate for about 40 minutes. And if somebody came in with severe alcohol poisoning to the point where like, you know, they have toxicity in, in their system, how long would they have to hyperventilate in, the, in that circumstance? Well, uh, that's even better because this system works, the, the higher the concentration that they come in with, the more they get rid of per minute. Oh, wow. So if they are above the lethal level, it would only take a few minutes to get them below the lethal level. That's fantastic. And you don't foresee any side, like, is there any side effects of hyperventilating for minutes on end? There is if you don't use this device. No, but like, but, but if you're replacing the carbon dioxide in, in your bloodstream, is there any other concerns or side effects that you there, might have? There's no foreseeable side effect. We can't foresee one. You know, this is after about 20 years of working with this type of stuff. You know, uh, yeah, I can't foresee any side effect. You know, uh, maybe some people might get tired of breathing or... I was going to say, know. like, like, is there a contraindication if you have, like, a weak heart or weak lungs or anything like that? Or if you're, or you're older? Probably not, but you have to be able to breathe. So let's say you have severe asthma or obstructive lung disease, this and that, then you wouldn't be able to breathe enough to get rid of the stuff. But for everybody else, you know, people who can, let's say, walk up a couple of flights of stairs or something like that, 
they would be able to participate in this, no problem. And so the technology that we're talking about that replaces the carbon dioxide in the blood, it's already an existing invention that's already being utilized for that purpose, right? So from a technological perspective, the device already exists. The real issue is testing it in order to make sure it can be used for this application. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so where are you in the testing process? Well, very early. So, uh, you know, we did the proof of concept. Ideally, it wouldn't be me who tests that. Right. You know, it would be people who work in the field, uh, you know, emergency doctors or people in intensive care units and, and other places. Uh, they, they should be testing it. It's simple enough. Uh, you know, this device is basically a mechanical, little mechanical thing. That you don't have to plug it in. It has no computers. doesn't even have a battery. It has no electricity, no electronics with it. It's just a simple little device. You just apply it and just test it. Fantastic. If people are looking for more information on the device, is there anywhere they can look online? Yes, they can look online. They can Google best treatment for carbon monoxide poisoning or something like that. They should run into this thing. This thing is called, for carbon monoxide, it's called Clear Meat. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My great pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. That was Dr. Joe Fisher. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss chair yoga on the tonic. Need better sleep? Brought to you by Ultramedic's new Nanogel mattresses. Nanogel is a trailblazing, no-pressure technology made from pure gel. Sleep virtually floating on air with Ultramedic's Nanogel mattresses. Now available with antimicrobial protection against viruses and germs. Black Friday specials are still on. Receive a free adjustable bed when you purchase any Nanogel mattress. Learn more at Ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. Fine and Associates are family lawyers who dedicate themselves to dealing with separation and divorce matters every day. They specialize in custody, access, child and spousal support, and division of family property. It's their mission to resolve all issues amicably. But, if necessary, they're prepared to go to court and fight strongly on your behalf. Fine and Associates family lawyers are committed to achieving the results that you deserve to help you move forward with your life. If you're going through a separation or divorce, call 416-650-1300 to speak to Lauren Fine for a free initial phone consultation. For more information, visit torontodivorcelaw.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Deborah Devine, is a trusted teacher and host of Healing Yoga, an innovative and inclusive fitness program and a gentle, accessible practice for all ages, abilities, and fitness levels. Healing Yoga airs daily in Canada on One TV and Vision TV. Each episode is designed to help prevent or ease symptoms associated with aging, injuries, emotional challenges, and chronic illnesses. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you, Jamie. It's wonderful to be here. So I have to come clean. I have to be honest with you. I suggested this topic of chair yoga today because I'm trying to convince my mother that this is something that she should be doing. So she's going to tune in and we're going to explain to her today all the efficacies. Okay. Fantastic. I'm so happy to hear you be an advocate for this kind of practice. It's really important for us as Zoomers to help ourselves with a bunch of tools to help us get through aging well. And chair yoga is definitely one of the tools in in our toolkit. So what is chair yoga and why is it so good for you? So chair yoga is a yoga practice that you do either simply sitting in your chair or using the chair as a support, for instance, to help you balance in a standing pose. You know, we're just adapting 
the whole yoga practice to suit our body's capabilities, you know, so the practice meets us where we are. And most important benefit is it feels great. You know, it's versatile, it's accessible, it's no cost, low cost, it's a mind-body workout, and everyone can do it. You know, it's perfect for us, as I mentioned, through aging, chronic illnesses, bone density, you know, arthritis, balance. There are a lot of really wonderful benefits that your mom is going to find. Fantastic. So if one were to start practicing chair yoga, what sort of benefits could you reasonably expect to gain? Well, first of all, you know, when we're when we're doing the breathing in our yoga practice, we are activating some parts of our nervous system that need to be kind of calmed down, right? Especially right now, stress is a key issue. And when we're doing you know, focusing on our breathing, we're optimizing our breathing. That's helping us with mental calm, focus, clarity. We're moving the spine gently, okay? So that's really important for aging well. We're only as young as our spine, as we're told. And, you know, we're moving our limbs. So we're keeping the circulation going. We're moving limbs. We're improving joint function, getting more synovial fluid moving around the joints. And, of course, with muscle activation and, and moving the fascia, the body's inner webbing and connective tissue, there are some very important things going on for our health. In a very simple practice, it looks so easy. But, you know, we're, we're dealing with a mindful practice, reduces stress, and then that changes your body's chemistry changes your body's hormones, and that enables healing. When we get out of the fight-flight sympathetic part of the nervous system and into the rest and digest and relax and, and, and feel good part of the nervous system, then, you know, the implications for that are all over the place. You know, all of our issues, insomnia, helping that, weight loss, heart health, pain management. So there are a lot of benefits to, to this kind of a practice. Okay, so is it really as simple as it seems? Is the only prop that you need a chair and a little bit of space? Yes. You know, what I love about this practice, it's so versatile. You know, you might be in your early 50s. You're very fit. You're active. And you can use the chair to help you access more complicated poses. Like Warrior Three is a one-legged standing pose where you're, you know, kind of hanging out in space. You can use the chair to help you cultivate balance. If, for instance, your mom is not very mobile, she can do the same thing. All she has to do is stand up beside her chair hold on to it and use that support to help move the other part of her, the other leg, you know. But you could also be using the chair if you've got, you know, mobility issues, if you've got multiple sclerosis, if you've had, you know, replacements, hips and knees, you know, we, we've got to start small and start easy. And the chair is a perfect place to, you know, get yourself set up into some standing poses. You've got lots of support under your, your buttocks and your legs. So you can activate by pressing into the ground. You're activating by lifting through the core. You're, you're engaging your core. You're lifting your spine. You're breathing deeply. So, yes, it is that simple. What sort of chair should you be using? I gather one with wheels is probably not great because it's not as stable, right? <laughs> excellent point. Yes, yeah. excellent point. And I think that, you know, it's, it's great to have a firm chair, like a dining room chair, a kitchen chair. But if you don't have access to that, you know, do what you can where you where you are. If you're traveling, if you're on on the TTC, yep. or you are, you know, on the go, you can activate your glutes in your seat. You can activate, we could do that right now with the listeners. If you want to, you know, think about placing your feet on the ground, activating your legs by pressing into the ground, and then activating the glutes, feeling the exhalation, take the belly toward the front spine. There's an automatic lifting up of the front part of the body. And then we're breathing in. You can feel the side ribs opening up 
collarbones are broadening, and you're doing it very discreetly. No one on the TTC is going to, you know, look at you funny by doing that. And when you're in a chair yoga class, the teacher might get you to do some complicated things. You could be doing things with weights. You could be doing things with resistance bands. You could be doing things with blankets. I mean, people are doing shoulder stand with the chair. Really? So it really is very versatile. Yep. Shoulder stand, I was mentioning Warrior 3. You know, you can kind of use the chair as a way to access some of these more difficult and athletic poses that maybe we could do when we were 20, but now I'm 60, and I don't really want to do that. I'm not taking my practice in that direction, but I want to get the essence of that more challenging pose, and I can just modify it and adapt it to where I am today in my body. Are there any contraindications for chair yoga or people who maybe not be suited for doing the, a program like that? That's a really good question. I think it's always important to consult your doctor, your healthcare provider, to find out, you know, what are the things that I should be looking at? Many of us are dealing with different challenges as we age. You know, for heart health, we want to maybe, you know, if you've got to blood pressure issues and whatnot, you might not want to take your arms all the way up over your head. Maybe your doctor would like you to keep your arms down. It's important to connect with your healthcare provider and find out what your, you know, reasonable limitations can be. And then you go to your teacher or you just know for yourself, like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to modify it and make the practice work for me. Let's talk about the practice because with yoga, it's, you know, it's always, the word practice always comes up. To get benefits, how long would you say like a chair yoga session should be and how many times a week? I love the idea of doing a full practice, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes or 60 minutes. That That's great because you get a really solid period of time where you're moving your body, you're getting the benefits of, as I mentioned, you know, your brain chemistry, your hormones are shifting. So when you do the practice for a longer period of time, it feels really amazing. But sometimes you don't have time, right? right? And I think it would be great to do that a couple times a week. If you can do that every day, you're going to see some major healing going on. You know, you're improving your joint function. You're improving your muscle tone. You're going to feel amazing, and you're going to see some results very quickly. But a lot of people, they don't really think about carving out that time in their schedule. So it's when something hurts. You know, for me, I'm even have that happen. You know, I get too busy too. So it's like my back is talking to me. And then I think, wow, it's time for me to take action immediately on this because I don't want it to get worse. So I'm going to do a downward dog with my chair at my desk. And I'm basically going to use the chair to hold my hands onto and I'll walk back from the chair very slowly and then extend my spine. So I'll do that a couple times a day if I'm working on a very long report or I've got a big deadline. So I like the idea of doing it as often and for as long as possible because you're going to get the most healing. But if you can't break up the practice into smaller chunks throughout the day, our bodies want to move. We've got to respond to that or you're going to feel pain. So making it easy, set a timer on your smartphone Every hour, you're going to do downward dog at your chair, or you're going to do some leg extensions. We're going to do some warrior poses on there. So throughout the day, you've got 10 minutes of movement built in for a couple of hours. That's a pretty solid practice. And doing it every day. We can't just wait, you know, for weeks before we get to the yoga studio or, or wait for our favorite teacher to be teaching. we got to get moving every single day, and the chair is where we can do it. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, to summarize you know, something is better than nothing. There's health benefits to even doing it a few minutes a day and sort of building up to it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Fantastic. So, you know, in these trying times when you were really not able to get out to a studio necessarily, what sort of resources are available for somebody who might be interested in chair yoga? Okay, so I would love to invite um, you to check out my Facebook page. I'm going to be doing a couple of chair yoga classes coming up. And you can also watch one television, Vision TV. We have a chair yoga episode coming up. There are a lot of yoga teachers that are online, local yoga teachers, local yoga studios. They want our support. So they're offering online chair yoga as well, many of them. Getting in touch with them. You've got a, you know, a Zoom a class experience so the teacher can see what you're doing and can help you with some adjustments to make the pose work a little bit better for you. And then you could also be just going online. If you Google Get Fit Where You Sit, there is a teacher by the name of Lakshmi Volker who actually started chair yoga in 1982 when one of her students could not get up and down off the floor in a regular yoga class anymore because of arthritis. So Lakshmi said, I'm going to put together a yoga program for you and you're not going to need to worry about that. And from 1982, here we are 40 years later, there are so many chair yoga classes that are going on around the world. And they're really expanding that kind of yoga because it works. It works for Zoomers. It works for people that have mobility issues, and it feels great, and I think that's really important. For people that are dealing with, um, you know, um, working from home, um, it's important to, you know, I, I think really important to just get that movement all day long. See if you can build in some kind of, you know, quick practice on YouTube, put together a little playlist for yourself where you can just kind of throw on a video in the middle of your day and then just, you know, make it easy for yourself. Sounds like great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Jamie. Have a great day. That was Deborah Devine. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss exercise and weight loss on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Noah Schwartz is the founder and visionary behind N Fitness. As a former competitive athlete, he knows the value of a well-balanced, enjoyable lifestyle and has made it his mission to inspire others to become their best selves. He's a certified personal trainer, metabolic training coach, and nutrition coach, giving him a uniquely holistic approach to health and fitness. Building a sustainable, enjoyable, healthy fitness lifestyle is his main goal for his clients. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me again. I'm doing well. I'm an outlier. I'm a unicorn. 
During COVID, I have lost 17 pounds, which, which, yeah, which makes me unique and special and all those things. But I didn't bring you on the show to brag, although that was part of it. I brought you on the show because I know you understand the interconnection between exercise and weight loss and, and really what proportion of it really ends up being about weight loss and how it all fits together. So you can help others during COVID maybe pull off the same stunt I have. What do you think? I think I could fully do that. If people are consistent with it and they're willing to be consistent, even through these tough times, weight loss or just feeling better will happen. If you're consistent, that's the big word. That could be the big word of the interview. I agree. For those who don't understand it, what's the connection between exercise and weight loss? The connection between exercise and weight loss is it's very similar, but I, I feel like people need to focus more on nutrition. Yes, the exercise is great for heart health and everything, but people rely too much on the exercise part for weight loss and not the nutrition part. They think by exercising more, they can eat more, which, yes, that is the, the name of the game is burning more calories than you take in to lose weight. But there's always, nutrition will always be a priority. And you're, you're exercising, you're exercising, you're exercising, you're, you're, you're not losing weight. There has to be something to it. If your nutrition is eating too much, are you thinking you're, you're overestimating the amount you exercise and so on. So nutrition will always be a priority for me with clients, but um, exercise obviously for the mind, for burning more calories, for getting stronger will be huge. But in the end, nutrition is the priority. No, and I understand that. And that is an important takeaway point. I kind of framed the discussion as though exercise is the answer, but it's only part of the answer. Yeah, yeah, very uh, part. You know, my view is your metabolism and, you know, obviously uh, you need more calories to maintain muscle mass as opposed to fat mass. But at the end of the day, it's your food intake that's going to drive it, right? 100%. And yes, and talking about metabolism and muscle mass, as you gain more muscle, you you, you, um, increase resistance to your training and get stronger, you will burn more calories at rest. So many individuals will rely too much on cardio and, and they'll do cardio, 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 but there's no muscle building in that. So... Once you've done a cardio session, you are done burning calories. Once you do a weightlifting session, you're burning calories not only during the workout, but you're also burning calories after the workout. So you want to be able to burn the most calories at rest. So during the workout is great, but at rest is what you got to be focusing on more. And that will lead to more calorie burn, which in turn can create that calorie deficit over the course of the day and over the course of the week. Right. So if you're doing an aerobic exercise, just by simply adding in some resistance training or some weight training within it, it can still be an aerobic workout. But if you include the other elements in it, you're boosting the amount of calorie burn on those off hours, right? Correct. Correct. Aerobic will only burn calories if your heart rate's at a certain point for the workout alone. It it will not. So say you burn 500 calories on a 30-minute jog. Mm-hmm. You will stop the calories that you that you burn the 500. You it will not. You'll, you'll, you're done burning calories. If you did a high intensity interval training like a metabolic workout, you might burn 300 or 350 during the shorter amount of time, but you're burning more calories over the course of the next 28, sorry, 24 to 48 hours after the workout. Right. And so that's one end of the spectrum with respect to exercise and weight loss. But I think what people don't realize is, you know, if you're inactive, it's probably not a great idea to start doing, you know, an intense aerobic workout. You you, you might actually do better if your goal is weight loss as opposed to building muscle or, or toning by actually doing something as simple as going for a walk, right? 100%. You can't go zero to 100. And a lot of people will, will see these exercise classes and everyone's like, doing all these these classes and they're high intensity and they're just starting out and then and they're burnt out after a week. 
it's all about the it's the longevity. It's the it's the building that sustainable lifestyle where you can do it forever, not just oh, I want to lose this amount of weight, X amount of weight in four weeks. You gotta start off slow, and whether that's maybe going for a thirty minute walk and you've never really done that before because you have a very low active job, then that might be good for you. I've had people who who come in for the first four weeks and don't touch a weight, and they haven't done exercise in years, and, and their transformations are insane because. They start off slow. They understand that they can't go zero to 100, and it's all about step by step and, and building different habits every single week to add to that crazy transformation they have after weeks or months, depending on how much they have to lose. Yeah, I think what people don't realize is that the biggest shift you can make for your health is from doing nothing to doing something. Once you commit to doing something, you are far better off than the nothing that you have been doing. The hard part is maintaining that something and increasing it significantly so you can get further results. But I guarantee it for for all the listeners, I mean, you you can vouch for me. I'm hoping you will. That doing something is really the key, right? 100%, 100%. Because I'll I'll always say if you're better than before, if you're better than you were before, whether that's going for a 10-minute walk compared to zero or a 30-minute walk compared to 10 minutes like you did before, building on small habits will add to will equal a huge, huge transformation in the end because small little steps here and there will add up. The mini steps, whether that's, okay, you, you're a big snacker at night. Let's bring, let's bring, let's bring a nutrition to the mix. Yep. You're a big snacker. You take away that one snack one day, every, sorry, every single day a week, and let's say that snack had 300 calories, you're saving 300 calories a day times seven. And that's only from one habit. And we can bring it back to exercise. You're going for a 30-minute walk compared to zero. That's 30 minutes every day times seven. And that's only one habit. You build on a couple habits every single week, three or four habits every single week. And it adds up. When people rush things, they're usually setting themselves up for failure because they really, really expect too much too quick. But it doesn't work that way. I I don't make my clients work like that more sustainable and it's more enjoyable when you take the long road when you when you think of it as a marathon over a sprint well you know and you hit upon the other catchphrase which is sustainability right and particularly during covid right if you are picking an exercise that is too challenging for you to do or is too inconvenient or you don't enjoy doing it guess what you're not going to do it. And despite all your good intentions, if you think of the exercise you're doing as a chore or something that you have to do, you're also not going to do it. It has to be something that you're willing to do and enjoy doing because the process is really is really the thing. It's not the result. Exactly. And progressing on those exercises. Yeah. Hey, you might not like doing a burpee, but that's okay. If you do a squat and you start increasing load on a squat, like, hey, I never liked the assault bike. I never liked the rower. And now it's my favorite thing because I, I did it. And once you do it once, and you build on that, then you're going to start enjoying new things. I have to disagree. I have to disagree with you there. I don't think I will ever enjoy the assault bike. I hate that piece of equipment with all my heart. But I know you started rowing like I'm rowing, and you'll agree yeah. with me. As boring as it is, it's great, right? Yeah, but not many people have those luxury pieces of equipment. And it's funny because in my, I changed locations in my gym, and I only had an assault bike for the first 12 weeks after loss, the first lockdown. And everyone came in and they're like, oh my God, I'm not doing the assault bike. And now they won't, eat. I got the rowers and now people love the assault bikes and they won't even go on the rowers. <laughs> they yeah. got so attached to it and, and they, they got such in a routine with going the assault bike that they just started loving it and they started beating their record. They started yeah. feeling better on it and everything. So, hey, you, you got to enjoy working out. You got to enjoy the Fuzzy leader. It's not going to be sustainable. Well, maybe I have to get back to the gym and try the assault bike one more time, but I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is one big thing for your listeners. During lockdown, it is not the right one. If you want to gain muscle, it, I, I'll always say, and I don't want to put too much 
pressure on people. It's not the right environment to have a goal of building lots of muscle mass because not everyone has the heavy dumbbells. Not everyone has even equipment. So, like, if you have a goal of gaining muscle, just know it is not the right environment. Not that you can't. It's not the right environment because you're in lockdown to have a muscle-building goal. Just know it might take longer because you don't have the equipment you usually do at the gym. If somebody were thinking of, of trying new exercises, though, how would you suggest integrating it into a larger program of weight loss? I would probably start off with the main exercise. There's six functional patterns that everyone should focus on and build off that. That's a, a hip hinge, it's a squat, it's a push, like a chest press or a shoulder press or a push-up, a pull, like a row, I don't know, a curl, anything that you're pulling, a lunge, and a carry. And those are the six foundational movements that everyone should focus on. Every listener that's listening to this has to focus on this, those six new patterns. And if they hit them once or twice a week, they'll be good. And then you progress on that. So if you love doing the reverse lunge, you have a lunge variation. Maybe do a forward lunge. Maybe do a reverse lunge. If you like push-ups, you got a chest press. you got a shoulder press. It's easy to have those six patterns and pick variations from each one to build yourself a template of workouts. It really, it really is. And then you, okay, you don't like the reverse lunge. You know, stick to a lunge. Maybe I, do, I like the, the forward lunge or the lateral lunge. It, it's, once you have the template, it's really, really easy to find your favorite exercises uh, to do during a workout and progress on those. Yeah, and, and I would add, like during COVID, all those six core movements that you talked about, all of them are doable with weights or without weights. And if you don't even have the proper weights, you can sort of jury rig it with household items to get sort of an increase in resistance. You don't need a fancy gym in order to do those types of movements, right? Yeah, 100%. And the biggest thing is, hey, say, let's say you don't have any equipment. You could change tempo. You could, you could do some isometric work. So you take a lunge, for example. A bodyweight lunge might get really easy for someone. But imagine holding that lunge for 10 to 30 seconds. Yeah. You could still build muscle and put your muscle through stress with body weight. You change tempo, you change speed. I love isometric work, especially without a gym. Like holding a push-up, holding a squat, adding more lactic acid, adding burn to the legs. You don't always have to stick to a body weight squat. You could add holds. You could, you could hold the squat for five seconds, pop back up. Changing tempos is really, really key, especially for body weight. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me again, Jay. appreciate it. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Philip Rochadis, ND, Dr. Joe Fisher, Deborah Devine, and Noah Schwartz. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The November-December issue is now available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss vitamin K2, psychedelics and the treatment of anxiety, the health benefits of lemons, and foods that contribute to anxiety. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.